0: Turn in your Bible tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, while you turn there, I was I was thinking whenever Roz was giving that testimony, he got what he what he wished. He wanted to die a Catholic. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, that, old, that old Catholic faith got nailed to the cross of Jesus, and he got born again as a Bible believer. Amen. And uh, praise the Lord for that. Amen. That's exactly what happened. He got what he wished, just not in the way he was expecting but it happened uh, in a lot better way than he planned for. Man, I praise God for that. And I and I just want to say I'm thankful um, that I wasn't in the room whenever Jason led him to the Lord because he's a big boy and there ain't no telling what all he tore up shouting. So I wouldn't have wanted to get in the way of that. Amen. All right. First Corinthians chapter number one tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number 10. First Corinthians chapter one, verse number 10. Uh, Paul writing the church at Corinth says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptize none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptize also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should become of none effect, be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord, let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives, our church family, Lord, and and in the lives of the families of our church. I pray that you'd help us to continue to be diligent in our obedience to you, Lord, to ever seek an opportunity to be used of you, and Lord, to let our lives be a light, a glorifying beacon for your grace and your goodness unto others, Lord, that people can see what you're doing in our life and see that God is real and that Christ is real and the salvation's real. And Lord, that they would long to know that same Savior and that same salvation. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done. Bless the preaching tonight, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice in particular what Paul says in verse number 27. He says, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. If I was to give a title or a theme to the message tonight. It would be the theme of weak things. Uh, Think about the fact that the Holy Ghost points to God's strange choice of human instrumentality and tells us that as we observe how God uses people in their life and what God does, we learn this as a profound truth extending from the cross of Calvary, but also reaching back to the cross of Calvary and teaching us some things about the Lord, His grace, His goodness, and love. I guess I've summed it up in this way. God uses weak people. God uses weak things. God's metric by which He determines whether He will use someone is not the world's metric. It's not based upon talent. It's not based upon treasures. It's not based upon position or prominence. But rather it is based upon a willingness to let God have the totality of our being. Now, when we read this passage of Scripture, I think we first need to acknowledge a little bit of context here. In verses 10 through 16, Paul speaks of a painful turmoil that was taking place in the church at Corinth. It's funny, you know, the church at Corinth itself serves serves as an example of this because it was undoubtedly the most gifted church. It was undoubtedly the most prosperous church that Paul wrote to. It was undoubtedly the most talented church and and church of prestige and church of honor and and eminence. And yet we find when we study through First and Second Corinthians, it is the most carnal church of any that Paul wrote to. They themselves serve as an example of this. And Paul begins to unpack that truth in these verses. The first thing we see is that there were contentions in the church at Corinth. It says in verse number 11 that it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So the church at Corinth was not a church that was peaceful. It was a church where there was turmoil, discord, infighting everywhere that they turned. Now, what was the reason for this? Well, verse 12 tells us not only were there contentions in the church, but evidently there were cliques in the church. And that's what led to this. Verse 12 says, Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now, here's what was going on. There was a cult of personality in the church. It didn't it wasn't about Christ anymore, but rather it was about what in group you were a part of. There were some that said, Well, you know, Paul led me to the Lord, and so I'm on Team Paul. Others said Apollos led me to the Lord, or Peter led me to the Lord. And then there were evidently some in the church that had been believers even since the days of our Lord's earthly ministry, and they said that I believed on the Lord through the ministry even of Christ. And this had caused these fractions and and frictions in the church at Corinth. Let me just make a passing comment on this so we can get into the meat of the message. Did you notice the order of things here? Paul undoubtedly in this group of men was the most brilliant. He does not describe himself as a particularly eloquent man. In fact, Apollos was the man that was the eloquent man. But Paul was a tour de force of personality. And so people like to say they were on team Paul. After him came Apollos. He was the orator. He was the the great speaker. And so there were some that liked to brag that Apollos had led them to the Lord. They got saved under that great revival meeting under Apollos and they wanted everybody to know it. Uh, Probably undoubtedly some folks identified with sort of the, the homely, rugged nature of Peter and the fact that Peter had such an intimate, personal relationship with the Lord. He was one of those three that was that inner circle. So some said, hey, I'm on team Peter. But did you notice where Christ came in all this? He's the very last one on the list. Does it not bespeak the carnality that was so problematic in their church? And this is what happens. Listen, when it becomes a cult of personality, inevitably Christ comes at the end of the list. You say, preacher, uh, you know, what's the problem with this in in churches? And I would basically say it this way. The church at Corinth had a problem with celebrity Christianity. Enamored with the personalities of individuals. Enamored with identifying with them because of their abilities or their talents. And when they begin to judge things through those metrics, who's the most talented? Who's the best preacher? Who's the best teacher? Who's the best singer? Inevitably, it becomes about them and no longer about Jesus Christ. He winds up at the bottom of the list. We find in what Paul says to them in verse number 13 that evidently this produced some confusion in the church. He says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Now this is a profound doctrinal statement because remember, the church is the body of Christ. And he's going to deal with that later in the book of of 1 Corinthians, how that they are the body of Christ and members in particular. And he's asking, is Christ divided? Should this be the case in the body of Christ? Then he asks this question, was Paul crucified for you? Was he the one that died on the cross? Was he the one that bore your sins? So why then should you be named after him? Why should your allegiance be to him? If Paul did anything for you, it's only because Jesus first did everything for you. And then he says this, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now here he gets closer to the heart of the problem. Uh, Paul evidently felt very, very strongly about this issue. and And he himself, to guard himself from being, identified with this sort of cult of personality, had, had refrained from personally baptizing any. But that evidently became the metric. By the way, carnal Christians today still are obsessed with baptism above true professions. It's still to this day about counting noses. And it was at the church at Corinth. It was how can you get the biggest group gathered around you? And all they cared about was the externality of that. And so Paul begins to hammer them about this issue. He says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. I don't know what a church of God would do with that. I I, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, surely Apollos didn't baptize in his own name. Surely Cephas didn't baptize in his own name. And undoubtedly, these men had not done that. But because they permitted this cult of personality to grow up around them, they make disciples of themselves as opposed to disciples of Christ. Or at least the people at Corinth had fashioned themselves after that manner. It says in verse 16, And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Now, what he's trying to show them is that the fundamental thing that occurs in a person's life is not when they get dunked underwater. Uh, it's not an external identification with a certain body or a certain group. Now, let me say very clearly, I'm not against labels. And you're not either, all right? Let me go in your medicine cabinet and start switching labels around. You're going to feel real strong about it. I'm not altogether opposed to labels. But the label is only meaningful in as much as it bears testimony truthfully to what's inside the container. I'm not against the label of, bad. hey, we ought to be baptized. And Paul believed in baptism. Uh, Paul had been baptized and he had baptized some. The problem was not baptism in of itself, but rather that baptism had become an external manifestation of this cult of personality. Now, Paul then makes an interesting statement in verse 17. He says, for Christ sent me not to baptize. Now, what does he mean when he says that? Now, Paul was under the same great commission that you and I are under, right? To go and to preach the gospel unto every creature and to baptize and make disciples. He's not forbidding himself. Uh, from baptizing, but he's saying the purpose for which I'm sent out, the substance, the heartbeat of my commission is not an external witness, but it's an internal transformation. He says not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now some of you are sitting there saying, Preacher, how do we get from this topic to the idea of God using weak things? Well, we're going to walk through the text because that's the very route that Paul took when he wanted to illustrate this. And it was rooted in a basic truth that the metric by which God dictates who He uses in the body of Christ and the, the ways with which He uses them is not related to who they are to their willingness to empty themselves of themselves and to let Christ be magnified in their life. What he's saying is that the the reason your life was transformed was not because Paul was a good preacher. It's not because Apollos was a good teacher. It's not because somebody was a good singer or a good testifier. The reason your life changed is because Christ died on the cross of Calvary. That's what transformed your life. And he's wanting them to understand that God has structured the... Reaching of people with the gospel of Christ in such a way as to preclude any carnal infatuation with men's abilities. I would say it this way. It is antithetical to the gospel message to make the local church a cult of personality. It is opposite. It is out of keeping. It, it, It is completely disconsolate with what the gospel says to suggest. That because God uses us to reach someone with with the gospel, that that is an endorsement of our skill or ability. No, my friend, it's not. It's an endorsement on the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice these few thoughts and then we'll uh, close tonight. First, we see that Paul speaks of a profound truth in verse number 17. He says, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And in doing so, he sent me, Paul says, not with wisdom of words, in other words, it wasn't my oratory, it wasn't my, my, uh, ability to speak, because had it been that, he said, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now, why does Paul say that? He says, if men have been paying attention to me, they wouldn't have been paying attention to Jesus. If they are, uh, flocking to me for me, then they're not flocking to the cross for Christ's sake. He says in verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Here was the fundamental problem that Paul's dealing with at the church at Corinth. They began to view the local church through a secular world perspective. They began to look around and say who's the most talented? Who's the most capable? They surely must be the most spiritual amongst us. Listen, this is part of the problem by the way, and you can see it in modern Christian music. Uh, most modern uh, contemporary music, along with modern southern gospel music, is as carnal as you'll ever find. Uh, particularly southern gospel music is so eat up with sodomy and homosexuality. Contemporary music is so eat up with the occult and with all kinds of dark things. You know why that is? Because they have prioritized talent above spirituality. It's about who can hit the notes. It's about who can sell the CDs. And it's no longer about who has a touch from God on them. And Paul is saying that uh, when we farm out, when we sell out to this world system and say to ourselves that uh, it is all about a cult of personality and capability and talent and, and, and popularity, we are doing something that is completely contrary to what the cross of Christ teaches us. In fact, if we were to go by the world's metric and standard, the very cross that we claim to be preaching would be deemed to be foolish in their eyes. They look at the cross of Calvary as a failure. The world looks at the cross of Calvary as a weakness. The world looks at the inerrant word of God as a fairy tale. If we're going to start using the world system to judge what is spiritual and what is beneficial, we're going to find that we're going to have a wrong perspective. And we certainly aren't going to agree with God in his assessment of things. The world looks at the preaching of the cross and considers it foolishness. But those of us that know the Lord know that it's not foolishness. To us which are saved, it is the power of God. That tells me immediately that there should be a difference in the value system of the world and the value system of the believer. That what the world values and how their mind operates, what their philosophy is of success and of achievement should be completely different from what the believers world system and view is. Paul speaks of a profound truth that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Then he speaks of a plain tragedy. Look at verse number 19. He says, for it is written, and here he's quoting Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. How do you destroy the wisdom of the wise? He doesn't say I'm going to destroy the wise. He says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. He says, I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. How do you bring understanding or knowledge or wisdom to nothing? Very simple. You prove it to be wrong. We're living in a world right now that's being torn apart by quote unquote experts. And you know what we're finding out? Is they weren't much good at anything in life except being quote unquote experts. And many things that they have said, I mean, there's people that uh, six, eight months ago were considered authorities that today are that close to getting run out of town on a pole. What happened? So much of their wisdom was proven to be false. God says, I'm going to do this very thing with the wisdom of the world. I'm going to prove to you that the world system of assessing value is incorrect. How does he do that? Verse 20, where is the wise, he asks? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Now, all these are rhetorical questions. He expects you to just stop and ponder on them. We could spend time talking about philosophers, the wise. We could spend time uh, talking about scribes, about uh, academics. We could spend time, the disputers of this world, talking about uh, law and legalese and justice. But suffice it to say that verse 21 gives us the answer to this. And certainly in the realms of philosophy, uh, we could find a lot of foolishness, right? Right? I remember here, and I think it was Brother Don Sable said one time, that philosophy is like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. It's a pursuit. It's the obsessive pursuit of questions and not substance and not truth. We could certainly look at at, at academia the world today, and there's a lot of foolishness goes on. You ought to get on these websites sometime. Maybe you shouldn't. It's just going to grieve you to see how much of your tax money and my tax money gets spent to study all kinds of stupid stuff that ain't nobody got any business ever even wondering about in the first place. And then certainly when we talk about justice in this world, there is much that is foolish in the realm of justice. People oftentimes that uh, criminals that are able to sue and get damages from people because they got hurt committing the crimes they commit. A lot of foolishness in this world. But what does the Lord point out as being the great bellwether of this world system's foolishness? Verse 21, he says, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. We can pause there. Say, preacher... What tells us that the world's way of thinking is not correct? Very simply, because it puts them without Christ. The world system, and I could we could go back and consider how the, the heavens declare that handiwork of God and, and the firmament showeth his wisdom and, and talk about how that mankind through the pursuit of knowing God, through self-examination, through the study of science and all those things, whatever merit they may have, uh, did not have the ability to bring a man to Christ, to transform him, to save him, uh, to deal with his sin problem. But let's just, we don't even have to do all that. Let's set that, let's table it for a moment and look at this. The, the wisest people by this world standards invariably are people that reject the truth of the Word of God and the cross of Calvary. Uh, I'll tell you, the great tragedy is this, that wisdom, whatever merit it has, it rarely brings a man to Christ, the world's wisdom. Now notice he makes a distinction here. He talks about uh, those that are wise after the flesh. He talks about not wisdom in a generic sense, but he's talking about the world's wisdom itself. And it says, after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Here's what God did. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God showed the utter bankruptcy of this world's wisdom to save a man, to transform a man, to change a man, to redeem a man. And the great tragedy of this human life is still men hurl themselves off the cliff of their own self-delusion pursuing after self-morality, self-righteousness, self-wisdom. All the while, God extends a hand of grace saying, you don't have to do anything but just receive my son and I'll save you and change your life. Paul speaks of a plain tragedy here, but then Paul speaks of a providential tactic. Look at verse number, well, we'll start at the end, verse number 21. It says, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, why does Paul speak of these two groups of people? Well, very simply because the Greeks here are representative of the entirety of the Gentile world. He's talking about all of humanity and speaking of them in the dispensational classes that God has traditionally viewed men in throughout history up until Calvary. God viewed people as either Jews or Gentiles. and He's saying, in the cross of Christ... God has chosen to displace the things that those uh, varying people groups valued and viewed as being the metric for what's valuable, for what's right, for what's righteous, uh, for what is meaningful, and has instead displaced those with the cross of Calvary. What does he say here? The Jews require a sign. In other words, the thing that carried weight with them was miracles. And certainly when you go back through the history of Israel as a nation, who would have been in their mind the two greatest prophets that ever lived? Certainly it would have been Abraham, or um, not Abraham, amen. Well maybe, I don't know how they felt about it. It would have been Moses, and it would have been Elijah. Isn't it interesting that Elijah is such a focal point to them? In fact, Elijah represents all of the Old Testament prophets. They viewed him as the figurehead of prophecy in the Old Testament, and yet Elijah never pinned down a single book of the Bible. Never once did God use him to pin down a sentence Himself of inspired truth. Instead, what did He do? He performed great miracles. And even when the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry came, one of the things that the Pharisees had to reckon with was the great works that He performed. Because all of the Jews that were around were seeing these great miracles and it carried weight with them because all throughout their history, whoever had the power to perform great works was viewed as someone that was credible. He says this, the Greeks... Seek after wisdom. The Gentile world on the other side of things was not as enamored with the supernatural, but rather with secular human reasoning. And certainly the church at Corinth would have understood this. And Paul himself would have understood this. He had stood toe to toe at Mars Hill with the great disputers of this world and understood that that human intellect was what sanctified and certified many of the world leaders and religious leaders of that day. So you say, well, preacher, what did God do? Did He, did he come and perform a bigger miracle than, than any Jew had ever seen? Yeah, He did that very thing in the cross of Calvary. Did He come and did He give more truth than any Gentile could have ever imagined? Yeah, He sure did that. The Word was robed in flesh and walked amongst us, amen? But it is not the earthly ministry that saves men from their sins. Rather, it's the death, burial, and resurrection that saves men from their sins. It was not the evidence of a uh, spectacular life, but rather it was the effect of a sacrificial death that saves men. And so God has deliberately chosen to circumvent this world's uh, value system in how it deems things being meaningful and has instead shined a light upon the cross of Calvary. He says this, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews' a stumbling block. You remember what they said when He was on the cross? If He be the Son of God, let Him come down. They viewed the cross as a great weakness. They said, if He really is God, if He is who He says He is, why doesn't He come down from that cross? What was He to the Greeks? It says, uh, uh, under the Jews, a stumbling block, and under the Greeks, foolishness. The world to this day still tries to cast Calvary as a martyrdom. Calvary was not a martyrdom. A martyrdom is when you take someone against their will and kill them for things they believe in. Calvary was where the very blessed, precious Son of God laid his own life down, not because of who and what he was, but because of who and what his persecutors were. (laughs) It was not a martyr's death. Why is the world so obsessed with casting it as a martyr's death? Because then it can be portrayed as a failure. To this day, the cross of Calvary still confounds great world leaders. They don't understand. The great thinkers of this world couldn't understand why God would come to earth, robe himself in flesh, live before men, and then die in their place. Only when you've tasted of the good grace of God, only when you've caught a glimpse of Calvary's love, will you understand what the cross was about. And for those that refuse to see it, it is always and forever will be the epitome of foolishness unto them. But unto them which are called, he says, Both Jews and Greeks. You see, God's not discriminate in this. Uh, Jews and Greeks. Any that will come unto Him. He says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, as soon as they will quit viewing things through the world's metrics, see themselves as broken sinners, and in faith look to Calvary as their only hope and help. You know what they'll clearly see? They'll clearly see that He is the very power of God. That His death, burial, and resurrection was the greatest miracle ever to take place. When a Greek will look and see him as the very help and hope of God for a lost sinner, then they'll realize and see the wisdom contained in it. But it takes a contrition of heart and soul. It takes a humbling of self. And it to this day is still something that an unregenerate world rejects and mocks and scorns. He speaks of a providential tactic. God deliberately chose the cross of Calvary. It wasn't an audible, wasn't a mistake. He wasn't picking up the pieces from the Jewish nation and trying to cobble something together out of it. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because God chose to prove foolish the perspective and wisdom and value system of this world and to show rather that it was the wisdom of God that would make the difference in men's hearts. And that's what he says in verse 25. We see a prevailing tribe. He says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If men want to call the cross of Calvary foolishness, it's confounded the greatest thinkers throughout human history. If they want to call it weakness, then it's a weakness that has arrested the heart, devotion, and fealty of millions of people. And all that does is prove that at their very, very best, they can't come close to touching what Christ did on Calvary. I mean, listen, all of man's ingenuity, all of man's ability, all of man's scientific effort can't do what Christ did when he threw off the shackles of death and walked of his own power out of that tomb. All of man's brilliance, all of man's wisdom all of man's cunning, all of art and device and man's cunning cannot write a story as beautiful nor as brilliant as the cross of Calvary. It is forever the very epitome of God's interactions with man. And then look at verse number 26. He says, for ye see your calling, brethren. So he's looked around at the world. He's looked out the windows of the church at Corinth and he said, look at the world out there and ask yourself, is the world wisdom? Does it bring you anything? Does it grant you anything? Does the world look like it has peace? Does the world look like it's triumphing and prevailing? No. He says, now look around at yourselves. You see your calling, brethren. How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I've known people throughout my life that I, I, in fact, I had a teacher in particular used to, uh, she used to, uh, she had written, I can't remember how many, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of letters when she was a young girl, uh, to Elvis Presley to try to witness to him for him to get saved. And, uh, I don't, I don't know that it was all that spiritual. I mean, you know, lots of young women were interested in Elvis Presley, but either way, she wrote these letters to Elvis Presley to try to win him to Christ. I've known of other people to write to, uh, you know, great movie actors, to write to great political leaders and in the endeavor to see them saved. Let me say this. I believe if they'll come to Christ, they can get saved. I believe they can. I believe we ought to pray for them too. And I'm not being disparaging of that. But understand that, you know, it's a rarity for people at the very apex of their pursuit, whatever it is in life, to believe on the Lord. That's why, listen, suicide is epidemic amongst them, but salvation isn't. And it's not because God wouldn't save them. It's because they have lived their entire life obsessed with climbing that ladder. And for them to accept that they've spent their entire life, their entire effort poured their heart and soul into something that is empty and meaningless is a very difficult thing for a human to accept. Rather, what we see the church peopled with, typically, is ordinary folks. God seems to have a particular affinity for ordinary people. He says, not many wise men after the flesh, denoting... He's not saying that uh, Baptists and church folk are dumb. I might say that sometimes, but he doesn't say that. You might say it too, amen. When he says, wise men after the flesh, he says, not many mighty. In other words, not those that are at the great apex of powers, not those that are holding the levers of world systems. He says not many noble. And I don't think he means that people, church folks are, are, are ignoble or, or dishonorable, but rather what he's saying is typically it's not people of great esteem or a great position in society. Instead, what do we see? God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise. So he speaks here of a perceptible trend. Something that was existent in that day and is existent still in this day, which is that most of the time the church is comprised of ordinary folks. That's not a shameful thing, nor is it a mistake or a failure on the part of the local body. There are a lot of churches, and you see this particularly in a lot of bigger churches, that they they gain an obsession with the idea of reaching prominent people. And they consider it a feather in their hat if they can get a city councilman or a mayor or a a prominent businessman to come and to be a part of their church. And uh, they'll do everything they can to try to appease them. And I see this all the time. I see it even amongst uh, so called Bible believing churches where uh, they'll ask people that I'm talking about no more saved than, than, uh, you know, probably Elvis Presley back when that teacher was writing to him, uh, that, that they'll have them come and speak to their congregation and give them places of great honor and great dignity in the body of Christ. Why is there such an obsession with that? I would say this, it's not a healthy thing in the body of Christ. God's no respecter of persons. We shouldn't be either. What we see is that While it is possible, there have been men throughout human history that have reached the apexes of their pursuit in their field, whatever it is, and and come to know Christ. It is not the typical thing. Instead, it's typically ordinary folks. And you know what that teaches us and tells us? It tells us this, that God evidently has a preference for using ordinary people in the sharing of the gospel. He says in verse 27, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world. Now that's not to say that Christians ought to be foolish concerning heavenly wisdom, just as he made a distinction between wisdom after the flesh. But what he's saying is uh, the type of people that God chooses, they typically don't excel in the world system. Why? The world looks at them and considers them foolish. And he's using uh, chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things, he says, of the world to confound the things which are mighty. I know that people have this vision of the church becoming this great indomitable voting block, and we're going to sign this petition, we're going to get this politician in place and this and that. I hate to tell you, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that is the way that God intends for God's people uh, to reach this world. I'm sorry, I don't think it's through lobbyists, I don't think it's through letters, I think it's through the love of Calvary. Uh, he says uh, that, uh, chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And then he says this, and base things of the world. Now typically when we speak of something base, we're speaking of something common. common, uh, Base things of the world and things which are despised, things that the world does not regard as being valuable or meaningful hath God chosen. And then he says something interesting, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things at all. I've always been fascinated by that phrase. What does that mean when Paul... Says that. Well, I think we have the answer when we go a, a little further back and find the usage of that word not earlier in our text. You remember, he talks about in verse number 19, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Same idea of bringing to nothing. Remember what we said, the, the, the way you destroy wisdom, the way you bring understanding to nothing is to prove it to be false or ineffective. And now Paul says God has chosen people that in the world's estimation are nothing. And he's chosen those people to bring to nothing the things that the world considers to be valued. How do we see that manifest in the lives of everyday human beings? Well, I'll tell you very simply. There's people that have the ability to pay millions and would gladly do it if they could have the happiness that you've got in your heart tonight. And that proves that money really has no value. There are people in this world that can command thousands at their beck and call. But if they could somehow command the sorrow out of their soul and command peace to come in and dwell, they'd do it. But they can't do it, but you've got peace in your heart tonight. So evidently power is not the most important thing. There are people that are prestigious and popular and they literally have millions of people that would gladly do anything in the world for them. Those people have no ability, the folks that, that clamor about them have no ability to give them happiness in their heart and peace and contentment in their soul. But you have those things tonight. So evidently, things like prosperity, things like power, things like popularity, whatever merit they hold, they are not the things that God deems to be valuable. Those things obviously are just nothing in the estimation of God. And how has He shown that? He's shown that with a bunch of nothings like me and like you. Shown that that's where peace is. That's where happiness is. Not in us. Why? Because we are nothing but rather because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying in this that the idea that we would elevate to positions of, of prominence and importance, the people that hold things that are valuable in this world's estimation, is completely contrary to the concept of the gospel. God did not send His Son to this world to prove how amazing you are. He sent His Son to this world to prove how amazing He is. When our business is proving how amazing we are, We are running contrary to God's will, God's work, and God's intention in this world. When it becomes about us, it can't be about Christ. John the Baptist said it best. He must increase, I must decrease. And the fact is, the more we try to increase, the more He's going to decrease in the eyes of men. The more that we are willing to decrease. You say, preacher, how far should I decrease? How small should I be willing to go? Well, Paul says not the things which are not. So I'd say if you can just keep shrinking in your own ambition until there just ain't nothing there, you'll be about at the place where God can show up and do something great with your life. We're to be nothing, to be brought to naught. We're not to live our lives for our own ambitions or our own He speaks of a preferred type here. He says God has chosen foolish things of the world. He's chosen weak things. He's chosen base things. He's chosen things which are despised. Now, there's a lot of things I can't be and there's a lot of things you can't be. But I think I can be all those things. I think I can be foolish in this world's eyes. I don't think I need to be foolish in the eyes of God. I certainly am capable of that too, but I shouldn't be. But I think I certainly can make it my life's mission Not to be esteemed in the world's eyes, but to be esteemed in God's eyes. I can make it my my purpose to be foolish in the eyes of the world. I can make it my purpose to be weak. Now that kind of weakness is not talking about a weakness of constitution or a weakness of conviction, but it's talking about a weakness of dependency upon self. I can choose to make my life not about the furthering of myself, but about the furthering of Christ. I can choose when I am assaulted, when I am afflicted, when I am accosted. I can choose to put my uh, well-being and my caring God's hands. I can choose to be weak in this eye's world. I can choose in this world's eyes. I can choose to be base. Uh, Now again, meaning not striving for my own exaltation or ambition, but instead for the Lord's. And I think I can be despised in this world's eyes. I already am for a lot of reasons. But uh, I I think I can live a life that is not clamoring for this world's approval. I think I can do all those things. And in doing any of those things, I'm not doing anything that gives glory and brings glory to me. It always and forever shines the light on Christ. And listen, That's not a bug. That's a feature of the plan. Look what he says in verse 29. Why has God done all this? He speaks not only of a preferred type, but of a powerful testimony that no flesh should glory in His presence. The reason God uses people is to bring glory to Himself. If our concept of being used of God is how can I get glory for me, we've missed out on what being used of God is all about. It's not about you getting Glory for yourself. In fact, the whole purpose is that he might get glory out of our lives. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, if I'm nothing, I mean, I, I'm, I'm called to this great task, and, but if I'm nothing, how can I do that? Well, notice what he says in verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Of God are you in Christ Jesus. In other words, anything about our life that is divine, is that in the person of Christ Jesus? How is that? Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So again, we see this basic principle. I I was going to call it a Pauline principle. It's not. It's a biblical principle. But Paul sure talks a lot about it. Emptying of self that we might be filled with Him. Uh, The less there is of us, the more room there is for Him. Uh, not about our wisdom. Uh, and if we'll put our wisdom on the cross, then uh, He'll be made unto us wisdom. It's not about our righteousness. If we make it not about defending and protecting our uh, reputation and, and people's idea of our righteousness and our justice, uh, then there'll be room for Him to be made righteousness for us. Sanctification, redemption, all of these things are to be present in the person of Christ being lived through our life. That according as it is written, He says, He that glorieth, Let Him glory in the Lord. Paul wraps it up by saying this. You being used of God, that's a good indication that you ain't much. Are you you a whole lot to brag about? That's a good indication you ain't going to be used of God. So he says, here's your choice. You can make it about you, but in making it about you, you're making yourself out to be not very much at all. Or you can make it about Him. And in making it about Him, you're showing that you don't think much yourself, but then God can use you for His glory for his benefit, I hate to tell you this, but there ain't no way because God won't be robbed of His glory. There ain't no way to get His glory. If we make it about our glory, we show how base and carnal we are. If we make it about His glory, we ain't going to be trying to make it about our glory in the first place. And because of that, God chooses to use people that the world looks at and does not think much of. Hey, listen, you know, I I know sometimes it's easy. The the preacher's always getting up and talking. People are awful kind to me and say lots of nice, sweet things to me all the time. And I I think to myself, our people must spend all their time just having to repent of the lies they told their preacher. (laughs) People say a lot of nice, sweet things to me and everything. And and, and it may be easy to look up at the preacher and say, boy, you know, that's really something to be a preacher. Uh, And you feel that way because of where you're sitting. But if you were to do it, what you'd recognize, the reason I'm up here at this pulpit ain't because I'm somebody. It's because I'm nobody. Uh, God didn't use me in this way because He looked down and said, boy, I tell you, that Toby Weber, I mean, he's really an A-plus guy. I mean, he really... Boy, he's got so much talent. He's got so much ability. I think I can use him. Instead, God looked down at me and said, you know, if I use him, people will know it's not him. They'll know it was God. If I use him, they'll know that it wasn't him. They'll know it ain't his talent. They'll know, they might think it's his good looks, but they'll, you know, it's my beard. In other words, it is the very weakness that we exhibit that makes us usable to God. It's the very nothingness of us that displays his everything. So you know where that leaves us? It leaves us without excuse. We can't look at God and say, God, you can't use me, I'm not enough. Because by saying we're not enough, we're only saying we're that much more usable to God. The only way that we can answer that to God is just to have to look at Him and say, Lord, I don't want to be used by You. But if you want to be used of the Lord, you can be if you'll make your life available to Him. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. You know what I think would be a good thing? would be if we commit ourselves afresh and anew to be used of God in whatever way He deems fit. To say in our heart and in our soul, you know, Lord, I know I'm not much, but in not being much, in fact, in being nothing at all, I know I can be used of You. Lord, I know I'm not much, but I want to give my everything to You and make myself at Your disposal and at Your dispense to use as You see fit. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son. We ask it in His name.